How many of you might be sports fans? Uh, I'm not really the kind of person who watches a lot of sports, uh, but I have on occasion. I'm more likely to watch uh, Olympics. Uh, I, I am, it's a little bit easier for me to, to uh, choose which team I'm uh, rooting for. Now, I know in our uh, multicultural congregation here, it might be a little bit stronger. You might not be sure who you're going to be rooting for during the Olympics, but uh, it is something that a lot of people get into. And one of the things that I have noticed when I have been uh, watching sports and have been rooting for a particular team is that there's some anxiety that builds up in the midst of the game, specifically if it is a really close game that it keeps going back and forth, back and forth, and you're not sure who's going to win, or if your team is way behind and you're holding out that they're going to somehow make a comeback near the end and they'll be able to somehow pull off a win of the game. The anxiety is not here if you're if your team is winning right through, uh, that's not a, going to be a problem. But uh, if you're not sure what's going to happen, that's when it's there. Maybe that's one of the reasons why I don't watch a lot of sports. I can't take the anxiety. I'm going to be all upset, uh, wondering what's going to happen, what's going to happen. And if you're not interested in sports, maybe you can identify with this, uh, maybe in an election. Uh, you have a particular candidate or uh, a political party that you're really hoping is going to win. And on the day of the election, you are watching those, uh, those results coming in. You're waiting for the, the last uh, of the, uh, the polls to close, and, and you're just really eager to see. And then you see uh, for a while uh, your, your party is not doing so well, but maybe they're going to start coming back when it moves to a different part of the country. And you might feel that anxiety. Is, is your side going to be the one that wins? Well, this kind of principle is there in general in the world, that we can look around the world and we can see what is happening. And there, we are hoping that the side of goodness, the side of righteousness, the side of justice is going to win. But very often, when we're looking at what's happening in the world, we see that it's injustice, it's unrighteousness, it's, it's crime, it's violence. All of these things are the things that seem to be winning. And we can almost imagine it in being the same kind of setting as these other things that we've been talking about. Uh, you know the side that you want to win in this world, and yet it doesn't seem to be happening. It's the, the wicked who are prospering. It is the righteous who are suffering. And we're wondering what is going to happen with all of this. Well, the, the Bible is very much aware of this and it speaks to it over and over again. Uh, we have been going through the Psalms. We start our service with a Psalm every Sunday. And very often, these Psalms are reflecting on this exact same principle. This uh, observation that what should be happening is not happening. That our side is not winning. That it seems to be uh, evil that often is winning in the world. And yet it is holding out hope that something in the future will take place. And the Bible specifies a certain event where things will turn around and where the the side of God does win. And it, it identifies it with the return of Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, oh, no, he's talking about the return of Jesus. I think this is the third sermon, maybe in the last uh, two months, where I have talked about this. And you might think, oh, he has really got a hobby horse when it comes to the end of the world and, and the uh, return of Jesus. Actually, that's not the case. I'm probably 
the least interested in this at any point in my, uh, in my faith journey. When I was uh, young as a Christian, it was something that was really, really on my mind. It's less so now. The problem is, when I'm going through the Bible, this message keeps coming up over and over again. And we continually encounter it. And so, uh, I, it's not that I am determined to bring this up over and over again. In fact, I, I can't even share any of my end-of-the-world jokes because I've shared them with you even recently, so I have nothing left. I was sitting here in the pew thinking, there's got to be something I can come up with. And uh, it was a blank. I just couldn't do it. But... That's okay. It's not the end of the world. So, see, there's still a little bit of giggling, even though you only heard that joke a couple of weeks ago. Uh, okay, we're uh, the return of Jesus is an important subject, and so that's what we're going to take a look at. So we're going to take a look at uh, Luke 21 here. And Luke 21 and its parallels in Matthew and Mark are some of the most confusing passages in Scripture. And the reason why that is uh, confusing is because there are two different things that are being talked about and they're kind of being combined. Uh, the, the two topics that are happening here are the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, uh, something that has already taken place in 70 AD, and the return of Jesus, the end of the world. Uh, these things are being talked about as well. And they're all getting mixed up. And we have to be very careful when we look at this chapter to try to figure out what is Jesus talking about here. Is he talking about the temple or is he talking about his return? And one of the reasons why it gets mixed up is because for the disciples, they considered those two things as being very closely connected. They can't imagine the, the temple coming down and the destruction of Jerusalem without somehow this being connected with uh, Jesus coming back and the end of the world and all of these other things that we think of. And so when they ask these questions, it comes together. But in this particular passage here, uh, he is talking about the end of the world. And he is, yes, connecting it to the temple. What would happen with the temple as the temple came down, as all these other things that would go along with that event, those were a foretaste of what would happen. But he looks forward to something further in the future, something that he describes as the Son of Man returning, that this is when the victory would come about. He outlines all the bad things that would happen, but the good guys would win when the Son of Man returns. Well, who is the Son of Man? The Son of Man is Jesus. Now, you might ask, why does he do that? That's kind of a confusing way of saying it. Why wouldn't Jesus just say that when I appear on the clouds? Why wouldn't he say that? Why does he say when the Son of Man appears in the clouds? Well, the Son of Man is actually a title that is Jesus' favorite way of describing himself. He doesn't go around saying, uh, Hello, everyone, I am Jesus, Son of God. Because for the Jews, with their very strict monotheism, that would not have gone over very well. Yes, Jesus was the Son of God, but that's not the title that he went around uh, saying. Nor did he very often go around saying, Hi, I am Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. Because, again, the Jewish people had a very clear idea of what the Messiah was about, and they would have brought all kinds of baggage upon that. So when Jesus referred to himself, very often he talked about himself as being the Son of Man. Now, what is the Son of Man? Well, 
in a way, this, this title is sort of a hidden message for the people who would be following him. On one hand, it literally means human being. That's what it means, a son of man. So uh, I am a son of man because I am a human being. I am a son of, a, of another human being. Uh, it is it is simple as that. You can look at different passages in the Bible. In Ezekiel, you'll very often see Ezekiel referred to as the son of man. And it simply is a way of God uh, calling Ezekiel human being. And so in that way, it's kind of innocent. The uh, religious leaders who were looking for an excuse to uh, attack Jesus couldn't attack him on that one because, yes, uh, they looked at him and he certainly looked like a human being. But there was another meaning for Son of Man as well, one that goes back to the Old Testament. It goes back specifically to Daniel chapter 7, and that's what we're going to look at right now. There's a, a prophecy that Daniel has, and it's important to understand uh, who Daniel was and, and what was going on. Daniel uh, lived uh, hundreds of years before Jesus, and it's interesting that uh, as Jesus is giving his prophecy, he's doing it in anticipation of the destruction of the temple. But Daniel is prophesying in the wake of the destruction of the first temple. Uh, even though the temple would eventually be destroyed by the Romans, the first time it was destroyed by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians sent uh, the Jewish people off into exile. And one of those exiles was Daniel. And so he was living in a foreign land, away from his homeland, away from the places where he would have normally been worshiping. And it was a struggle for him to be able to be faithful to God. And you could read through the book of Daniel, all of the different uh, things that himself and, and his uh, three friends went through as they tried to be faithful to God and continually faced opposition. And so it was a very difficult time. And in the midst of that, he receives this prophecy. And in the prophecy, he sees the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days is, is God. That's who he's seeing. And he's getting a prophecy of when things are going to be fixed, when everything is going to be made the way they're supposed to be made. And so he sees the Ancient of Days, and then he sees what uh, is described here as one like the Son of Man. And that means that there's this kind of divine being that is there, but he doesn't look just like a divine being. He looks like a son of man. He looks like a human being. And it is through this human being that the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. We see that all authority is given to him, and it is through him that things are eventually made right. And it's not explained exactly who this son of man is to Daniel, but he has an anticipation that this is what is going to happen. And it's going to be through this son of man that the kingdom of God is going to come. Well, going back to Jesus, Jesus is identifying himself as that son of man who is appearing on the clouds. That when he returns, he's going to fulfill not just the prophecy that Jesus is giving on the Mount of Olives on that particular day in around uh, 30 AD, but he is also fulfilling the prophecy that was given to Daniel many centuries before that. So the question I want to ask is, what do we do with all of this? 
For some people, they look at this and they think, okay, I am going to take a look at the book of Revelation. I'm going to take a look at the book of Daniel. I'm going to try to take a look at the numbers. I'm going to try to uh, do some calculations. I'm going to try to figure out some hidden codes that are here. I'm going to be able to identify when this happens. I'm going to identify what it's going to look like. I'm going to figure out uh, um, exactly all of the details that are found. And some people just love to do that. Uh, I don't think that that's necessarily what the Bible is asking us to do. Uh, for some other people, they look at this, this promise, that yes, that b- things are bad now, but Jesus is coming back and he's going to fix everything. They see that as the excuse to become completely passive. In fact, not just an excuse to be passive, almost a command to be passive, that we might as well just give up. And I've heard Christians, Christian leaders, uh, when they uh, hear about other Christians who are trying to make a difference in the world, they describe that as rearranging the furniture, the chairs on the Titanic as it's sinking, saying, why would we even bother doing that? Why would we even want to help the poor? Why would we want to feed the hungry? Why would we want to go overseas to third world countries? Why would we try to put an end to the drug crisis? Why would we do any of that? Just let this earth burn up and Jesus is going to come back, and everything's going to be fine. Anything we do right now is a complete waste of time. The problem with that is it is completely the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Over and over again, even though it holds out the hope that ultimately the kingdom will only come in its fullness when Jesus returns, it tells us that we are supposed to be doing something right now. We are supposed to be building the kingdom right now. We are supposed to be reaching out to the people around us. We're supposed to be feeding the hungry. We're supposed to be helping the poor. We're supposed to be visiting the prisoner. We're supposed to be uh, being with those uh, who are uh, on the fringes of society. We're supposed to go overseas and help those in need. We're supposed to help those in our community. We're supposed to do all of these things. These This building of the kingdom. It is not a waste of time. In fact, the belief and the confidence that Jesus is going to come back, that our side is going to win, is supposed to be the motivation for us to do these things, not the excuse for us to stop doing that. So the things that we're doing, the things that we're trying to do in this church, and that many other churches are trying to do as well, is exactly what Jesus wants. And if Jesus wants to uh, interrupt us in the middle of that, just as we are uh, serving a bowl of chili to some person, if Jesus wants to return in that moment and interrupt that, well, he's fine to do that. He is absolutely welcome. But until that happens, we need to work as hard as we can to make a difference in this world. This concept of Jesus returning at some point, uh, this is something that's found over and over again in Scripture. This is not a side doctrine. This is not one of those little things that, well, you know, I don't really want to think too much about it. I'm just going to put it in a, in a uh, filing cabinet somewhere, and it's not something of interest. It is there, and it is central. It is what Daniel looked at. He didn't understand the details of it. He didn't know that it was going to be Jesus. But he saw this vision of the Son of Man before the Ancient of Days and all authority being given to him and the kingdom being built. Jesus, centuries after that, was speaking to his disciples 
uh, as they were anticipating the destruction of the temple, as they were thinking about how bad things were going to get, Jesus wasn't wanting to leave them in a state of depression, but wanted to encourage them that the right side was going to win. That even though it may look like the wicked are flourishing now, Jesus is going to return and is going to bring the victory. And that means that our side is done. And if we look at this world as being like a sports game where it looks like uh, our side is losing and it, we're, we're, we're way back by about 100 points and we don't know how are we possibly going to win, well, our star player is just about to step onto the court and we are going to win. He is going to bring about the victory. Let us pray. God, we thank you that Jesus is going to come back. We don't know when that's going to happen. We're not going to uh, sit down in the pews and just wait. We're going to work, and we're going to do the work that Jesus has called us to do, to build this kingdom in the community that you have placed us. And we realize that Jesus may uh, come back soon, or it may be another century, or maybe another thousand years. We have no idea What matters is that we know that your side will win. And because of that, we have the hope for this life and the life to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.